Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs, Wednesday night. Can you hear me okay? I'll get close to the microphone. Thank you for coming. I'm here to introduce our guest speaker tonight. My name is Larry Alford, for those of you who don't know. And I've known our speaker for a good number of years. She comes from a background in the investment business as an, a head analyst at some of the uh, top Bay Street firms in Canada. She does volunteer work for thousands of hours a year. I don't know of anybody that works harder. She helps manage the United, uh, United Church Pension Plan, which is one of the top four independent pensions plans in the country. She was uh, instrumental in recovering $330 million of money from the largest bankruptcy in Canada, and she was using non-traditional methods. She didn't receive any help from courts or normal processes. She, uh, she and numbers of people used a name and shame process to get $330 million recovered for people who were going to go penniless. She's here tonight to talk about financial fraud, and she'll be giving a slightly different talk about specific investments tomorrow at noon at Southern Alberta Council in the old Erickson's building, the keg restaurant downstairs, for anyone who would like to hear just a little bit more or just a little bit different um, explanation of the, events, of the events. She came out west to speak specifically to us. She stopped in Calgary on Monday to speak to the Nortel Pensioners Group, a, a group of people who are looking at the possibility of losing their pensions and their disability payments because of a bankruptcy there, and she's fighting very hard to uh, counter that. And then she spoke Tuesday at the University of Calgary Haskane School of Business on this topic. Diane has told me in the past that people in areas like Lethbridge, in outlying areas is my word, um, she calls people like that uh, retail investors. She was at the investment analyst position in the firm and the retail investor was at the uh, at the other level, and I was a retail stockbroker during my time dealing with mom and pop investments, some of you people in this room. She says that retail investors in outlying areas are sometimes used as a dumping ground for bad investments in Canada, believe it or not. That when an investment firm needs to unload something that, that does not quite smell right, the place to unload it is a long way from Toronto and a few levels below the smart institutional investors. So that sometimes comes down to people like you and I, retail investors. Tonight she is going to show us what she believes to be a scam, more amazing than anything that took place in the United States with AIG or any other firm. Tonight she is going to draw you a picture of how Southern Albertans, from a preacher in Calgary to a pig farmer in Daysland, to our own city can be duped out of their savings and have their money used as the insurance collateral for a few hundred billion dollars of loans held by some of the larger banks in the world. A magic money machine where the money goes round and round and retail investors like yourselves take 100% of the risk and virtually no possibility of reward. So just try and remember as you listen in shock, which you may do, I was certainly in shock when I spoke to her earlier. She has no book to promote. 
She has no website to sell. She has no film and no firm and no salary to represent. She's here at her own cost and has worked this way for many years now to educate and warn the public about financial fraud. Would you help me welcome Diane Urquhart? Thank you very much, Larry, and thank you very much to the Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs for having me uh, here this evening and tomorrow to talk to you about the fight against financial fraud. Um, we are indeed in a fight, but I am fortunate in that there is an army develop, uh, developing of individuals who have been defrauded either by rogue brokers or by systemic fraud in products that have been sold to them by the major investment dealers of Canada. I'm also working as a financial consultant uh, on a pro bono basis for the National Pensioners and Senior Citizens Federation, which has over one million members from coast to coast. In addition, I work very closely living in Ontario with the United Senior Citizens of Ontario. We got serious about the fight against financial fraud after the Earl Jones Ponzi in uh, Quebec which was the gentleman you saw at the opening slide, and after my experience as a financial advisor to the retail owners of asset-backed commercial paper. We assembled a large number of committees who have chairmans and members who have been defrauded of their life savings as a result of investment fraud. On September the 15th, a large group of us attended a media conference in the Charles Lynch National Theatre in order to demonstrate to the federal government that we have a serious problem and that uh, we are not established in order to prevent investment fraud that's causing the life savings of Canadians in the billions of dollars each year. And uh, also, uh, we haven't got a functioning securities regulatory enforcement system or a securities crime policing system in our country. So we are on a campaign to get new structures, more money, more experts on the beat so that we can catch more of these fraudsters and get them into jail. Amongst the uh, groups that uh, have uh, joined us in this campaign, are, it, there is an ABCP Retail Owners Committee that is chaired by a gentleman from Victoria, British Columbia. We have a Nortel Bankruptcy Justice Committee. Nortel uh, filed for bankruptcy this year after a decade of mismanagement and participation in accounting fraud. And as a result of the accounting fraud and the management preoccupation of dealing with class action settlements, securities regulatory sanction procedures and settlements, and finally criminal charges, Nortel took its eye off the, uh, off the ball. And so here we have one of Canada's icon corporations founded in 1895, now in bankruptcy due to their uh, involvement in accounting fraud, leading to over $2 billion of damages for close to 25,000 Canadians. So they too are in this fight against in, uh, financial fraud. We also had a Norshield victim group. We had the Earl Jones Victims Organizing Committee. Here in Alberta, we had the Shire Victims Committee, which is a real estate income trust that uh, has widespread allegations of fraud with substantial losses. 
Uh, we had the Norberg Victims Committee. Uh, some of you may have seen on the news uh, the founder of Norberg pleaded guilty and has gone to jail for 12 years, but his five accomplices have now been released with a hung jury yesterday. So clearly uh, there's work to be done still to be successful in prosecutions within the Canadian courts. Uh, we also had in Alberta Progressive Management and Montreal. Uh, we tried to get a committee going on Ian Thau with Berkshire Securities who defrauded 30 million mostly elderly people. And what we found is that the, the victims of Thau are just so ill and so exhausted by the fight that it's difficult for us to find representation. Canadian business uh, in September of 2007 had a cover story that said Canada is a good country for crooks. If you suspect Canada is soft on white collar crime, these ex-Mounties have news for you. It's worse than you think. So that too has motivated myself and all of these victims committees and people like Larry Elford on the cause as well to get to work to make the structural change and to put the money in place to get the experts so that we can prevent these fraudulent products from entering the marketplace. We think of Canada as being a well-advanced democratic industrial nation and one that has a high degree of honesty and integrity in its marketplace. PricewaterhouseCoopers, in a study released on November 20th, 2009, just three months ago, in a global economic crime survey, has put Canada as the fourth worst, most fraudulent country in the world. They place us uh, behind Russia, where 71% uh, of the, uh, these would be corporate uh, uh, executives and uh, professionals who would be responding to this survey indicating that 71% of the businesses that were surveyed in Russia have been associated with some form of financial fraud. Kenya next, or uh, South Africa rather, is uh, the second, uh, considered the second most fraudulent country followed by Kenya and then Canada and Mexico. Um, I'm sure that some of you would be shocked to know uh, that this survey would place us at such a bad position uh, in the world marketplace for financial fraud. And so we have presented uh, this material to the Justice Committee. We have been in communications with the public safety ministers across Canada, here in Alberta for sure, uh, and uh, we are uh, asking them to join us in making the necessary changes for us to get off the top of the fraud list and to become uh, a, a more reputable capital market because if we cannot do so, not only will we suffer substantial losses of our, our personal savings, particularly in the seniors market, it will bear on our capacity as a country to raise money internationally in order for business development in Canada. When we were in Ottawa to the day on September 15th of 2009, uh, the RCMP announced criminal charges of the largest Ponzi scheme in Canadian history that was based here in Alberta. Uh, there have been charges rendered against Gary Sorensen and Malo Brost, who are the founders and promoters of several small 
TSX venture companies, uh, including syndicated gold depository, Meriden Mining, and Institute for Financial Learning. It's estimated that there are uh, up to $400 million of losses not uh, yet tracked down as to the location of the assets and 4,000 investors affected, most of which are in the province of Alberta. And I put this slide up as testimony to the significant problems we have in our securities crime uh, policing system of Canada. These, this alleged Ponzi scheme began in 1999. It was not until 2005 that the Alberta Securities Commission starts a regulatory investigation. And uh, we know from our own personal knowledge that there were seminars being made, highly promoted in newspapers, concerning the Institute for Financial Learning in small towns and major cities. And we had brought this to the attention of the Ontario Securities Commission because it just didn't make sense to us what the business proposition was. In 2005, the Alberta Securities Commission, upon receipt of uh, their first examination of evidence, uh, also referred the matter to the RCMP Integrated Market Enforcement Team in uh, Calgary. 2006, the son of an elderly uh, couple, in, I believe they were from uh, Manitoba, learns that his parents have invested in these Brost Sorensen companies and he begins to investigate and concludes that it is his allegation that this is a Ponzi and he starts uh, publishing a website from uh, California warning people not to invest in any of the securities listed here. Finally, now, we're eight years later, the Alberta Securities Commission renders a fine of 650000 which is the largest fine in history. Meanwhile, the two gentlemen are continuing to raise money on other securities that are not related to the matter that was uh, brought to sanction before the Alberta Securities Commission. The U.S. De uh, Justice Department renders lawsuits against promoters in the United States who are attempting to raise funds. And not until September uh, 15th of 2009, now we're 10 years later, do we see the criminal charges from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And uh, I would uh, go so far as to say that I believe it's not a coincidence that we would have 12 investment fraud victim groups in Ottawa complaining to the Minister of Justice about the weakness in securities crime policing in Canada that uh, the RCMP would choose to lay charges uh, here in Alberta. The Earl John's uh, Ponzi scheme is 75 million approximately, uh, it looks like from the sign 100, uh, somewhere around 100 and 150, mostly elderly women. Earl Jones was an unregistered financial advisor who practiced in Montreal for 25 years. This was a man whose uh, name was in the yellow pages to provide financial advisory services, and yet no uh, authority took it upon themselves in the 25-year period to look at the yellow pages to determine whether or not everyone listed there as a financial advisor is properly licensed. The woman that's holding the sign at the front here, her name is Danielle Manouvier. She is a woman from Sherbrooke, Quebec, which is very much leading this fight against financial crime. Uh, the, the sons and daughters of the Earl Jones victims, who are mostly elderly women, many of which live in the United States, you know, have 
gotten so angry that they're not taking it anymore. And so they have very much been leaning into the federal government and into the Quebec government to crack down on white-collar crime. And Daniel Manouvier and another gentleman, Joey Davis, are very much behind this new thrust that we think the federal government is listening to. I've already spoken about Nortel, so I just want you to focus on this couple who are an LTD couple. Uh, there, uh, on March the 31st, the bondholders of Nortel are seeking to stop all long-term disability income payments to the disabled of uh, Nortel, and so this is you know, a picture of the kind of people that receive damages. These are people who will go on to the Long-Term Disability Plan of Canada, which is only $13,700 per year, and their average medical costs are $12,000 a year. So investment fraud is driving uh, uh, people into poverty, uh, and uh, we are working pretty vigorously there as well within the bankruptcy system to try and get uh, better treatment of the victims of investment frauds in companies that end up in the bankruptcy courts. These, are, these pictures are a bit dark, but I want to spend a few minutes now on the asset-backed commercial paper fiasco and uh, alleged uh, criminal fraud. Uh, I was the appointed financial expert to assist the retail owners of ABCP. We had uh, over 1,800 families whose life savings were placed in this product and they fought for 18 months to get a return of their life savings. And uh, through the efforts of myself and many of the uh, uh, very active, uh, affected uh, uh, retail families used name and shame. But uh, as you can see here, uh, the target was very much uh, individuals and seniors. And uh, so there were, these were pictures taken at information meetings that were held as part of the bankruptcy process uh, by the uh, Pan-Canadian Committee, which was a committee of the large institutions who were uh, the leaders in the restructuring plan for asset-backed commercial paper. It was our view that the Pan-Canadian Committee had no intention of having these uh, elderly uh, couples and other uh, retail owners uh, receive their life savings back. They were supposed to take the long-term paper due in 20, uh, 2017 in exchange for their savings deposits, which they had anticipated they would get back within 90 days. And uh, this was the process of the name and shame because we educated a number of these retail owners uh, at a time when uh, the legal counsel for the Pan-Canadian Committee was telling them uh, that they were uh, not to worry, the long-term notes would be good, that they would get all their money back, and uh, that this was going to be a successful uh, restructuring. Uh, Somewhere in the process, approximately April of 2008, we got Purdy Crawford, who is legal counsel to the Pan-Canadian Committee, to admit to this retail group that they would suffer substantial losses. Um, I wrote at the bottom here, we did have a suicide amongst our group, unfortunately within two weeks of us getting our settlement. Uh, a gentleman from uh, Manitoba who was uh, a Greyhound bus driver was overcome uh, by the, the challenge and the prospect of loss and the loss of control that he had in, in, in his life savings. 
So in part, I continue this campaign of public education because we do uh, believe that there is systemic fraud in the international and Canadian uh, investment banking industries and that uh, unless uh, citizens become informed and uh, become politically active to require reform, that we're going to have more of these products placed in the marketplace and the next financial crisis will be worse than the one that we've just experienced. I want to explain to you what is in the non-bank. ABCP is the acronym we used for asset-backed commercial paper. It was a savings product that was sold by the dealers as a substitute for bank deposits and government treasury bills. So it could have been you who previously had guaranteed income certificates and you went uh, to your uh, investment dealer and it was matured and you wanted to replace them. And they would offer to you something like Structured Investment Trust 3 or Area Trust. And they would tell you that this was equivalent to the guaranteed income certificate. What we saw with some dealers on the days that they distributed the asset-backed commercial paper, they didn't have, supposedly they did not have any guaranteed income certificates or T-bills to sell you that day or that week. And so they were giving you what they did have available, which was of the top rating. Some people say that they're not concerned about uh, people who uh, buy bad investments because they were greedy. They were looking for a better return. And so they were not on guard uh, that it was possible that they would be purchasing a product that was fraudulent. Uh, and they should have been. If you were expecting to get uh, a 12% interest rate and GICs were offering you 3.5%, I, think, I can assure you to, that the 12% is not going to be a real return, uh, that there is uh, likely to be very high risk and possible criminal fraud in such a return being promised to you. In the case of the asset-backed commercial, there was almost an imperceivable difference. The people who bought this were getting interest rates maybe t uh, 0 0.10, 0 0.20% more than they would get on, on guaranteed income certificates from the bank or on the T-bills. There was no basis in the interest rate quoted to them that would cause them to want to buy that and to prefer that over an alternative. And they were told it was the same. And we had sales tapes to that effect, and we also had testimonies from uh, at least 60 different persons across the country who all told us the same story about how this was sold to them. It was sold as safe, equal to treasury bills, and guaranteed in, in income certificates. And most importantly, they were told it got a top uh, credit uh, rating, uh, which is R1 high in this particular class of uh, deposits. Now, what has happened in this country is that there was just one credit rating agency that gave it the highest rating offered, and it was DBRS, Dominion Bond Rating Services. Standard & Poor's, which is a big international credit rating company, and Moody's, which is another major US-based company, both of those companies, <coughs> excuse me, 
were unwilling to give this paper an investment grade rating. There was major research in the marketplace by Standard & Poor that indicated that on the basis of its research and because of the flawed bank guarantee underlying this product, uh, that they, were, they felt it was very high risk and below investment grade. So notwithstanding that, DBRS, which is the homeboy credit rating agency, gave it the R1 high. Canadian, now, now you have to sit down in your chairs because you're going to be shocked to find what is inside this asset-backed commercial paper. What happened here is that uh, the savings of Canadians, the savings of the City of Lethbridge, the City of Hamilton, PSP, uh, Public Service Plan, uh, the Canada T uh, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, the Alberta Treasury, uh, it was everywhere, primarily in governments and to a great degree in the retail marketplace. That money went inside trusts and, and at that very time that the cash was received, that money was pledged to the international banks in a contract that ensured the bad loans of the international banks. And so while the product was sold to Canadians as asset-backed, your money immediately was pledged to the international banks, and you no longer had security, first security access to it. And I can assure you that based on an examination of the marketing materials, whether you were institution or whether you were retail, there was no transparency. There was no uh, information that was supplied to the marketplace in the information memoranda that would have the buyer know that his money was used to in, uh, in an insurance policy to insure the bad loans of the international banks. And so Canadians unknowingly insured bad loans. And, um, so as a consequence, there's no question in, in my mind that there was uh, uh, fraud with respect to fraudulent misrepresentation of the product uh, to the marketplace with respect to how was your money deployed. Who were the international banks whose loans you insured? By far the dominant player was Deutsche Bank a bank that uh, hardly has a business in our country. This is the Deutsche Bank whose head office is in Frankfurt, Germany, and who conducted its transactions with the Canadian non-bank asset-backed commercial paper market from its offices in New York by very advanced structured credit experts. The next most significant supplier uh, of, uh, or the buyer of insurance from these trusts was Merrill Lynch, which is the big American investment bank now that went broke uh, and uh, became part uh, in this financial crisis uh, of Bank of America. The next was HSBC Bank, another foreign bank who does business here. The only Canadian bank that was involved in, the, uh, in having uh, these trusts provide insurance of their bad loans was the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. And then we had a host of other foreign names, such as UBS from um, Switzerland, and Citibank from the United States, Swiss Re from Switzerland, RBS, the Royal Bank of Scotland, Wachovia of the United States, and Bank of America. And so, 
to the extent that there are losses in the non-bank ABCP for uh, Lethbridge here in the remaining term to maturity 2017 and on an interim basis, um, these losses are primarily to the benefit of Deutsche Bank, uh, is my uh, opinion. And Deutsche Bank is the perpetrator of uh, this alleged fraud. Uh, and certainly fraudulent misrepresentation in the collection of savings from Canada to ensure their bad loans. I don't want to get into, uh, for people who come back tomorrow at the, lunch, at the SACPA lunch, I'm going to go into more detail uh, on how exactly did the ABCP work. But uh, what I want to note is for those who uh, want to leave uh, uh, today with a new financial term that you may not have heard of before, these international banks bought leveraged credit default swap contracts to ensure their bad loans. This was a derivative uh, that was invented for the first time in 1997. And it's a contract that went from zero to $65 trillion size market in the world uh, since uh, 1997. And so what happened in the non-bank ABCP is symptomatic of a product that was unregulated and was non-transparent and is at the core of the financial crisis throughout the world. And if we had to attribute one invention that is causing economic recession and the millions and millions of people that are losing their jobs uh, throughout uh, the world and here in Canada too, I would say it is the credit default swap product. And, uh, yes? Yes, Deutsche Bank uh, uh, bought a swap and the Canadian non-bank asset-backed commercial paper sold the swap. Excuse me, Dan. We'll take questions yeah. afterwards. Willie, if you could hold the floor until we have an intermission. Thank you. Okay. And also tomorrow, if you have time, I was planning to actually put some graphs up to explain the swap. The actual uh, financial agents that put it together uh, are names you've never heard of. You've heard of those international banks, probably, who supplied the contracts. But the actual designers here in Canada uh, were uh, names like Coventry, Narius Financial, Newshore, Metcalf, National Bank, Dundee, and Securitas. These were entrepreneurial companies uh, founded by, in most cases, fixed-income experts. And just out of uh, local interest, National Bank was the distributor of the asset-backed commercial paper that uh, was bought by uh, Lethbridge. And, uh, it, um, and so National Bank, you can see, was very much involved in the design. And National Bank also owned Metcalf and Mansfield, and Deutsche Bank owned Metcalf and Mansfield. So as you can see, it was quite the uh, web that was woven here in Canada in order to get access to Canadian savings to ensure the bad loans. Uh, pretty much all the dealers of Canada, with the exception of TD Bank, was involved in the distribution. Uh, they were the actual distributors of the product. Uh, and the, the largest distributors are, are as noted here, uh, BMO, Nesbitt, Burns, Scotia Capital, and HSB Securities. But pretty much every dealer was involved. 
Already uh, in Canada, there has been seven investment banks that have received sanctions from the securities regulators. And uh, so the, in these uh, sanctions, they have reached a, an additional cash settlement for their retail customers. And this is an example here of what was written about the nature of the misconduct of the seven dealers. They were all pretty much the same. Between July 25th and August 10th of 2007, the respondents failed to adequately respond to emerging issues in the Coventry asset-backed commercial paper market insofar as it continued to sell Coventry asset-backed commercial paper without engaging compliance and other appropriate processes for the assessment of such emerging issues. That's a regulatory doublespeak that the seven uh, dealers have been accused and have agreed that they dumped the asset-backed commercial paper uh, into the retail marketplace after they knew that the value of the paper was impaired as a result of U.S. subprime and as a result of a substantial decline in the value of the credit default swap contracts that caused a decrease in the value of the asset-backed commercial paper. Deutsche Bank, who is the largest distributor, or who was the largest asset provider and who signed the bank guarantees, has refused to settle. And Deutsche Bank is going to be subject uh, to a uh, hearing. They, the allegations are already out, and there will be a hearing in September 27, 2010, where they have the opportunity to defend what they have done. Um, I'm optimistic that the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada will be able to uh, enter a sanction uh, decision with a settlement remedy uh, because the evidence with respect to Deutsche Bank would be the same evidence of the other major uh, players that uh, were involved. Now, that's enough of the toxic products. Now I want to start talking about what is the government doing to uh, get at uh, additional securities regulation enforcement and securities crime policing. When we were in Ottawa on September the 15th, our Justice Minister Rob Nicholson uh, tabled Bill C-52, which is an amendment of the Canadian Criminal Code. And what this amendment achieves uh, is that anyone who is involved in um, a securities crime which has victims losing collectively over $1 million, that's not one person losing a million, it can be one person losing a million, but it can be also 100 people losing a million dollars. That person is going to have a, if found guilty in the criminal courts, will go to jail for a minimum of two years. Uh, the maximum sentence for white-collar crime is 14 years, so that stays. And our maximum is less than the maximums in the United States, which tend to be 25 years. But we have had numerous cases of financial uh, fraud uh, perpetrators uh, getting conditional sentences only. They get community service or they get uh, uh, other uh, forms of uh, penalty. And so what uh, Rob Nicholson and what the Government of Canada uh, is proposing is that uh, if found guilty of a million or more, you're two years in jail. In addition, there's new provisions in, coming in the criminal code that a judge has to uh, make arrangements for a restitution order. Restitution, it means that efforts have to be made to find the money 
of the person who defrauded uh, victims, and then uh, the government orders that that money be dispersed to the victims. And so it's going to be required that there be a restitution order unless the judge gives solid reasons why he's unable to do so. And so those would be the two most significant innovations that are proposed. The advantage of the restitution order is that uh, the victims don't have to go to civil court. And to go to civil court is uh, very, very expensive and time-consuming. So uh, there has been a strong campaign to uh, get the restitution directly out of the criminal courts. The other change that's proposed, some of you may have followed the Conrad Black case, uh, which was uh, his uh, paying of himself non-competes for companies that uh, he owned, uh, for companies he owned, and he's in jail for six years in the United States. His partner, who was the cooperating witness for the U.S. Department of Justice, got two years, and he was able to uh, obtain uh, day parole within one-sixth of his sentence and to be free within one-third of his sentence. So the Canadian government is proposing in Bill C-53 that there be no access to early parole for someone who is a financial fraudster taking over a million dollars. So if the sentence is 14 years, the sentence will be 14 years. If the minimum is two, it's going to be two. Uh, and this is what the uh, 12 victim groups who were in Ottawa in September have been advocating to ensure that we are uh, going to be tough on, on the people who have uh, exhibited white-collar crime. There are two major innovations uh, that are required, one of which, uh, in addition to the criminal code, I think you would all know that it's fine to have very strong sentences in the criminal code, but if you do not have a securities uh, criminal police system that is conducting investigations and successful prosecutions, people, it doesn't matter what you put in the criminal code, uh, it's good for the polls, it's good for uh, potentially uh, uh, becoming a majority party of a government, uh, but uh, we are busy telling the Conservative government that we're expecting to see the National Securities Commission and also, uh, we're, uh, and I'll show in a moment, we believe there needs to be a new securities crime unit. Which, uh, and so what I'm showing here is that the movement to the National Securities Commission is moving ahead and moving ahead very, very quickly. It will come to pass. And that is notwithstanding Alberta and Quebec being opposed. And the reason it will come to pass is that the other, uh, I believe that Manitoba may, <coughs> may, may also be opposed. <coughs> Uh, but the way this will work is the other nine uh, provinces and territories will proceed to a National Securities Commission. And uh, they're also uh, proposing that uh, not only can provinces opt uh, in, they are going to allow the corporate issuers here in Alberta to opt in to the national regulator and not be regulated by the Alberta Securities Commission if they choose. And so the hope and the expectation is that the large corporations of Alberta would rather be regulated by the National Securities Commission than the Alberta Securities, uh, than the Alberta Securities Commission for the purpose of international image uh, that they are regulated by Canada's national regulator and not by the local Alberta Commission. Um, I'm just putting up on the list here, you can see Alberta is not part of the transition program and nor is, is Quebec, and the reason is those two provinces are opposed uh, at this time. 
Quebec is so opposed that they are proposing to uh, contest the right of the federal government to create a national securities commission under the Canada Constitution. And so what Mr. Flaherty, our finance minister, and our prime minister have decided to do is to preempt the process. They have made an application already to the Supreme Court of Canada in order to uh, proceed to determine yes or no, is the legal counsel to the federal government uh, correct in saying that they have the constitutional right to get into the business of securities regulation uh, and enforcement. But this is what I'm worried about. Um, the governments are moving to fix Canada's broken securities regulation and crime policing system, but we want to make sure that this isn't just a superficial whitewash. Uh, what we're saying is we don't want the same old structures, same old procedures, same people in charge, and most importantly, we don't want what we have now at the provinces just show up at the national level with the same controlled process without accountability to the investing public. This is the way our system looks today. Uh, we have something in the order of 16 different agencies who say they are in the business of securities enforcement or securities crime policing and uh, remedial actions. The system is broken, it's convoluted, there's uh, just uh, basically what we've collected from our victim groups. Uh, this is a typical investigator or intake officer when you go into the Alberta Securities Commission or you go to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. What the ABCP owners found, and they are shocked to this day, you know, we have cases where a fam uh, small business families had $1 million when they went on a business trip in their investment accounts. When they came home from their business trip, they had $1 million of Structured Investment Trust three without their knowledge and consent. And so when they called the commission, no one answered their calls in the British Columbia Securities Commission. When they called the Ontario Securities Commission, no one answered their calls. When they called the police, no one came to their door. You know, we had a rock thrown through our window at our home and we had two police officers investigating as to what might have been the source of the rock and they prepared a report. Here's a family that a million dollars of their lifetime savings, and that isn't a lot of money today when you need to retire and you'd never worked for a major corporation, to find that that was frozen, no idea whether you would ever get it back, and not a single regulator or policeman at your door to take your statement and to begin an investigation. Uh, needless to say, they were shocked. And that's, you know, they are very much part of this movement to get uh, someone on the beat to receive your complaint. There was nobody to follow up on their complaints. They were left on their own. There's been a, a complete mismanagement and loss of crucial time as a result. I think the regulators would tell you that they started their investigation in approximately uh, it froze in August of 2007. No investigators started an official investigation until approximately November 2008. And to this day, there is no police investigation, including those who had securities put into their account without their knowledge and consent. So there's no accountability or transparency in the, in the complaints and investigation process. And uh, you know, I'll, uh, now I want to go to what do we think is wrong with the system? We think the system 
is uh, not working, and I'd probably be able to go on to say that there is certainly a, an immense amount of bureaucratic complacency, and given that we've had this system for 25 years, I'm prepared to say we have an investment industry that controls our securities enforcement and our Royal Canadian Mounted Police in the white-collar crime areas. The, at the top of this chart, you'll see that we have effectively no jurisdiction for financial fraud investigation by any municipal police force, regional police force, provincial police, or even the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Commercial Crime Unit. So, for example, we were at the Canadian Association of Police Boards and we had the opportunity to meet you know, some of your Lethbridge, I think your Lethbridge Chief of Police. And we talked to the various uh, police services, uh, you know, would they be able to do financial fraud investigation? And time after time after time, you know, we were told that's the RCMP integrated market enforcement team responsibility. We have no budget. We have no experts. Uh, you know, we send these to the Alberta Securities Commission or we send these to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. In, in 2003, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, after the Enron fiasco uh, in the United States, created a new unit whose function was to do capital markets crime, anything involving stocks, mutual funds, fixed income, asset-backed commercial paper. That was supposed to be investigated by this new unit called the RCMP Integrated Market Enforcement Team. You have an IMET team here in Calgary. You have them in Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. We think that the RCMP IMET has been a failure and that uh, it's a failure by design and by how it has been structured. And the reason we say that is the RCMP IMET delegates investigations to the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada, which is a self-regulator. It is a private sector entity whose function is to uh, ensure that misconduct within their industry is addressed primarily through evicting partic rogue participants in the investment industry. And so in the asset-backed commercial paper, for example, my family who had a million dollars removed and replaced from their account, uh, when asked to have an investigation done, in the end, the only investigator, largely because of the work of myself and our, our team of uh, leaders in the asset-backed commercial paper market, they get, and, and because I provided a list of the people who wanted to provide testimony, uh, the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada ultimately interviewed the, most of uh, the, the um, uh, worst damaged asset-backed commercial paper retail owners. <coughs> The Ontario Securities Commission was not involved, and when we got, you know, when we got examining this, and I'm from the securities business 30 years, and so I know all of the players. The provincial, the Ontario Securities Commission chairman was nominated by Purdy Crawford, who is the chairman of the Pan Canadian Investors Committee. And subsequent to that, and David Wilson is a former boss of mine, he is, he is the former CEO of Scotia Capital. And at Scotia Capital, he would have underwritten much, much of this to toxic asset-backed commercial paper under his own personal supervision. In addition, 
uh, David Wilson retained uh, as the vice chairman and uh, the primary person who would determine what is getting investigated is the son-in-law of Purdy Crawford and his name is Lawrence Ritchie. So needless to say neither Mr. Wilson nor Mr. Ritchie found that there was any misconduct in the asset-backed commercial paper market and so here you have the RCMP not on the beat delegating to the uh, Ontario Securities Commission who is you know intricately uh, involved in the product and the industry and then delegating down to the industry itself. Now I did say earlier there was ultimately a securities regulatory investigation and sanctions that were held but I can assure you it was only because of the name and shame that came from the ABCP retail owners who had lost all their life savings and who sought to have justice. Uh, not only with, uh, getting their money back, and there's a lot of money that came, more money that came out of these regulatory investigations. We want a new securities crime policing model. We do not want the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to have exclusive jurisdiction for securities crime investigation. And we do not want the, the RCMP integrated uh, market enforcement team to be fully integrated and collaborating with the securities regulators of Canada. The RCMP is the only police force in the country that does not have civilian oversight. And you may have been reading in the last couple of days, there was a, a, a forum that the Liberal Party held in Ottawa earlier this week in which Paul Kennedy, who's the current commissioner of the RCMP, he has had his contract not renewed. And I found it improper that it was a one-man commission oversight board to begin with. Now he is not renewed because he has spoken out vigorously about tasers and other matters of uh, problems within the RCMP. And they have brought in a gentleman whose name is Ian McPhail, who is an estate lawyer, no policing experience of any sort whatsoever, and he is the new one-man one commissioner of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And he, he uh, says his job now is part-time. Can you imagine? <laughs> that someone can work part-time as the civilian supervisor of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the largest police force in the country with the flood of problems that that police force has had in recent years. Clearly, uh, we need as citizens to communicate with our federal members of parliament that we are not satisfied with the new appointment and that we need structural change in the RCMP from a civilian oversight perspective. One of the, you know, one of the things that uh, we've been pretty uh, vocal about in Ottawa is that the RCMP has indicated uh, through its director, Dean Buzza, when we asked him about why the RCMP had not yet done a criminal investigation on the asset-backed commercial paper, he wrote us a letter and he told us that in the case of an IMET investigation, the unit commander is obliged by the conditions imposed by the federal government to present all potential investigations to the unit's joint consultative group, which is comprised of managers from various agencies involved in the enforcement and prosecution of criminal, quasi-criminal, and or regulatory matters. 
So what he's saying is the unit commander who's been confronted with uh, a person who wants to have an investigation who delivers prima facie evidence of criminal has to take that evidence to the joint consultation group to get a recommendation to proceed. So the RCMP IMET by its own director has indicated that he has to take his evidence and his plan for investigation to the investment industry self-regulatory organizations. The, I, the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada and the Mutual Fund Dealers Association of Canada. And the OSC and the other major provincial securities commission must give the RCMP an okay to proceed to criminal investigation. Um, I must tell you, in the last, uh, since the IMET was formed, there are three uh, prosecutions and they were all minor cases with people going to jail uh, just a, a, a nominal amount of time. There have been charges in the Nortel case and charges in, a, in three other high-profile cases, but we wouldn't expect that to come to any kind of a criminal hearing for, any, for as much as five to ten years from now. And uh, so I'm of the view that not only is the RCMP not well equipped in expertise, that structurally the investment industry uh, acts very quickly and robustly to protect their top uh, officers and experts, including uh, their efforts to protect those who did the asset-backed commercial paper dumping. We're calling for uh, strict separation of uh, government police from the government regulator from the private sector. We don't believe at all our victims group in the integrated model. We're looking for securities crimes under the Federal Criminal Code to be, uh, to be investigated uh, by police only. And so we're, we would like to see a new uh, Federal Provincial Securities Crime Unit working with all the police across the country and to work separately uh, from the new national securities regulator who is going to deal with administrative infractions under the Securities Act, matters that don't require people to go to jail from 2 to 14 years. So it would be a little bit different like a traffic cop versus, uh, uh, versus the police that are, are examining rapes and murders and financial frauds over a million dollars. The private sector can continue to exist, but we're of the view it should be removed from the delegation of all investigation and remedial actions against individuals in the investment industry uh, because our retail marketplace cannot uh, rely upon the integrity of the industry conducting its own uh, policing uh, for its benefit and not likely to be as interested in what happens to your life savings. So our securities crime unit idea is one national unit. It's going to be a, um, a little bit like um, you know, phone, a single phone number that you would call. You could go to your local detachment. If you tried to uh, imagine the Earl Jones victims, let's say they had a couple hundred thousand dollars of all their life savings and you're a widow. Uh, our idea is that a uh, widow uh, would go to the Lethbridge Detachment as an example. The Lethbridge Detachment would know who the two experts are that are on the Securities Crime Unit for Alberta. That uh, crime specialist would immediately call uh, this widow or their family to take their statement uh, and if they're able to, to go to Calgary that may be how it would go or if the person is uh, disabled then this uh, expert would come to see this person. 
They'd put together an investigation file and it would go back to the Calgary police or the Lethbridge police if it was a, a single uh, theft item, if it was uh, an asset-backed commercial paper problem with uh, you know, s several hundred thousand, then it would go back to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police National Unit for examination. And so we think that uh, we need to restructure how the policing is done. Um, what I show in this slide is we expect it to not be a one-man oversight um, working part-time. We're expecting to have a securities police board above this new national uh, panel of uh, police experts, securities crime unit, uh, and that would have up to seven members. These would be uh, in part uh, 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 civilians that have an interest and uh, affinity to uh, care about the integrity of uh, white-collar crime policing. It could have representatives of uh, various governments as well uh, in that this is how our current Canadian Association of Police Board guidelines uh, permit and seem to be working quite well. So what do we see the benefits of what we're proposing? We need a National Securities Commission and a separately uh, operating securities crime unit, restore confidence, address victims' frustration, stop the buck passing. Uh, we want the police to have sole jurisdictional authority. Um, and uh, uh, we want a standardized and recognized police system for criminal complainants and evidence management. Uh, we want to not have any cross-contamination of the evidence with the regulators. Uh, we want timely, you know, we want some, a policeman coming to your door when you have been defrauded, uh, not two and three and four years later, as we've seen in the Broston Sorensen case, as we've seen uh, in the uh, Ian Thau case, as we've seen in the Asset Back Commercial case, where three years later no police has even opened a file yet. Um, we need police starting immediately and simultaneously with the uh, regulators and as far as we're concerned, nowhere close to the self-regulators. And uh, only then do we think we can get fraud statistics so that we can get proper police resources and priorities. Um, I guess what I want to spend a little bit of time, this is not where it appears our conservative government uh, and federal government is now going in Ottawa. Uh, and it is not where the RCMP wants to go with this. Uh, and it is not where Doug Hyman, who's the current transition officer, is of, uh, for the new National Securities Commission. Doug Heinemann, a few weeks ago, when I asked him whether it was intent to put the criminal police under the National Securities Commission, uh, I think I got a yes from him. The investment industry would like to see the RCMP IMET unit become a division of the National Securities Commission. So you can see here that under the National, it's proposed that, again, all police frozen out of the system. Uh, no municipal, regional, provincial, or rural Canadian mounted police commercial fraud, uh, commercial crime involved, that the new National Securities Commission will be responsible for criminal policing as well as regulatory infraction enforcement. And uh, sharing evidence and working together, which they say is the best way uh, to proceed for uh, effective investigation and prosecution. We say this is a corruption model. This is a model that has the investment industry seeking control of criminal policing in Canada, and it uh, continues to have substantial delegation of responsibility to the investment industry itself as the first line of intake and the first level of investigation. 
So uh, we would like citizens to be educated and to be opposed uh, to this model. Uh, and uh, it probably is pretty easy here because Alberta is opposed to the Alberta Securities Commission, but not necessarily its citizens, I suppose. Um, we are going to you know, be speaking, and we've attended the Canadian Association Police Board, and we're meeting with government officials across the country. And working on this with me in this regard is the former head of the corporate fraud squad of the Toronto Police Service, who has worked with us on the proposed structure. Why don't we like the National Securities Commission controlling the police? Uh, basically because uh, we're expecting, uh, unless we have proper civilian oversight, that we're going to get a country club model for the new National Securities Commission. Uh, what I mean by that is we're uh, expecting the uh, federal government to attempt to create a commission which has only a private board of directors. So your Lethbridge Police, for example, has a Lethbridge Police Services Board. And I, th I believe any one of you can attend those meetings, correct me if I believe that uh, you know, there is a published uh, place where they meet, they have a published agenda, you can make a, an application to make a presentation, you probably can show and ask to speak and to be allotted a few minutes. If you feel your local police force uh, is uh, biased or is not uh, you know, dealing with the speeding on a certain street which you feel is dangerous for the children on that street, you have the right to go to your Lethbridge Police Board to make a complaint and to request that officers patrol that street and give more uh, traffic tickets for speeding on that street. So that's a, a democratic right. It's uh, published that you attended to speak on behalf of your community and you can expect that there would be an action from the police board working with the police uh, chief. Um, we don't expect that the National Securities Commission has that as a plan. None of the commissions work that way today. None of the provinces have published, have their commissioners have any kind of public meetings whatsoever. Everything is closed door. There are no published minutes. They only report to your local Minister of Finance. It's proposed that the National Securities Commission would report only to the Minister Flaherty. There's no intention to have this National Securities Commission report to the House of Commons Standing Committee, which would allow uh, opposition parties to impose some standards of integrity and conduct. There'd be no opportunity for experts like uh, Larry Elford and myself to attend before uh, the um, Public Safety Committee, for example, to uh, register our concerns about uh, toxic products not getting adequate review. That it doesn't work that way today, and it's not intended that that would work that way. There's no protection in what's proposed for the whistleblowers in the industry uh, who seek to indicate that uh, there is no compliance or due diligence being done about savings products that are being prepared. The enforcement practices of the National Securities Commission may not be within the jurisdiction of the Auditor General of Canada. Uh, some of you may be aware that there was a dispute with the Alberta Securities Commission in recent years and Frank, uh, Fred Dunn, rather, your Auditor Gen General, was asked to go in and examine the investigation files. The Alberta Securities Commission spent $2 million to try and prevent Fred Dunn from having the right to examine the integrity of the Alberta Securities Commission files. So there's going to be an effort here to try and not have the law be clear that the Auditor has such rights. And uh, in addition, they're uh, proposing a new consumer panel as an advisory committee to the new National Securities Commission, but we're saying that's not a replacement 
for Civilian Oversight Board. So that's what I had to say. Um, why did I come to Alberta? Why do I speak out? Why do I do this for free? Um, first of all, I do work on uh, cases when they are purposeful cases for the purpose of improving um, deterrence of investment fraud, uh, but a substantial amount of my work is done pro bono because I would like to see the citizens speak up about these matters. Um, I would like them to be active with their local MLAs and their members of Parliament and demand that they make the necessary changes in the Securities Commission enforcement and in the policing system of Canada. And I'm afraid that if we do not do so, uh, that we're going to have a financial crisis next time that's worse than the one that we have just gone through. Uh, because unless uh, citizens demand to have proper uh, uh, approval process for the safety of the investment products in the marketplace unless they demand to have police on the beat who have the expertise necessary to get at these complex crimes, uh, the investment banking industry is going to continue to distribute toxic products in the market, continue to do so without requiring transparency, and more millions of people are going to suffer uh, losses as a consequence. So anybody who wants to contact me, there's the information. You're welcome to email me on issues. Um, and we do have a bit of a website. It's www.ismymoneysafe.org. If you'd write that down, there's some great videos done there by CBC, uh, one on the asset-backed commercial paper problem, um, one on who's guarding your money, and uh, can you trust your advisor. And if you want to learn more about the Securities Crime Unit that we propose, we've uh, Gary Logan who's the former head of the Corporate Fraud Squad for Toronto. Police Services and I speak out about why we need it and uh, how it should be defined. Oh, yep. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you very much.